Coming up in this podcast, Landgate sale, Brexit impact, Tianchi lithium, Hospitality's surprise new offerings, Yukich expansion and our special report on the gold sector. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Mark, it's been a long time coming, I think, but the WA government has bitten the bullet and sold Landgate. Well, interesting choice of words. Uh, yes, it's a privatisation deal from a Labor government that campaigned very heavily at the last election against privatisation, which might explain why the announcement did not use the word privatisation. Yeah. Uh, but look, the Landgate deal that was announced during the week, a very large transaction, $1.4 billion. So a consortium led by one of the Macquarie Bank uh, sort of entities, Uh, They've teamed up with a couple of superannuation funds. So they've bought the right to operate for the next 40 years the, if you like, the core services run by Landgate. Um, Essentially, that means that they will, um, you know, operate the automated titling services. Yeah, right. So it's the property records of WA, right? That's right. Now... Landgate will continue to operate um, as an entity. Um, The public will still deal with Landgate um, and they'll maintain the manual titling transactions and they'll retain, if you like, um, you know, as the government keeps on saying, you know, the the security, privacy and integrity of land titles will be maintained. But fundamentally, the core service will be operated by a private consortium for 40 odd years. And similar deals were done in other states um, for you know similar sort of mouth-watering amounts of money. Uh, the Victorian registry was privatised for nearly $3 billion. Um, South Australia for about 1.6, New South Wales, $2.5 billion. Um, so this is seen as a one of those services that delivers very consistent, reliable income yep. of a kind that investment funds and superannuation funds alike. It's like a utility, isn't it? It's just a, it's a constant stream. It's a very predictable yep. revenue stream. I think they've restricted the, you know, th- for a safeguard, I think they're restricting the uh, new owners. The price rises can only be as much as CPI. That's, That's my right, kept at CPI, yep. Um, and look, the other thing was, didn't Landgate have some technology? I mean, they've actually been a technology prov- service provider to other similar vehicles in other states, is that right? Yep, and so they set up an entity called Advara, and that was they were seeking to go out and win lots of work. Now, that hasn't panned out as they'd been hoping. Um, right. They'd been trying to pick up a big contract in New South Wales. Now, in this case, um, the new Macquarie Bank Consortium will, in fact, use Advara as sort of an IT service provider. Okay. So there's a, a bit of work sort of within that, um, mm-hmm. but there's no sort of commercial disclosure around what exactly that involves. Gotcha. And um, I'm a little bit intrigued though, you said South Australia was sold for 1.6, is that right? That's correct, yep. So how come WA, which is a much bigger state in terms of number of people and therefore presumably, and also in area, wouldn't we have a bigger sale price? It may come down to the conditions attached to the sale, okay. uh, and in particular capping any Price. fee increases yeah, right. to CPI, yeah, which sort it. of puts a you know, limits how much value the new owners might extract from it. Got it. Um, but look, you know, Dean Alder came out and said, uh, you know, there was a campaign at the last election. Labor said the only privatisation they were going to do would be the TAB, and they're still pursuing 
the sale of the TAB. Um, you know, ben Wyatt might argue that this is not a privatisation, it's a partial commercialisation of a service, but I think for most of us, we'd see this as a privatisation yeah. deal. Well, because it's got a 40-year limit, you mean? Well, and it's, you know, the government says they still own Landgate, they still rain, maintain, maintain control of the records. Right. Um, they've got this consortium in there delivering the service. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they paid $1.4 billion for it. Yeah. They're not going to give that kind of money away for, uh, for no return. Got it, got it. Um, well, and, you know, interesting too, that there's this one for Landgate, there's the TAB deal coming up. You know, that's taken a long time to come, but we expect something uh, probably more news later this year. Um, and the other big one, um, Synergy um, effectively sold its renewable energy projects. Yep. Uh, once again, Macquarie Bank was involved there as well. Um, but that was the right to, well, they bought some existing renewable energy assets, a solar farm, and the right to develop a big new wind farm up in the nor- um, you know, north of Perth. Right. So, you know, Labor's done a few very substantial privatisation deals. Hmm. And, and so Dean Nelder, I think, is quite entitled to point that out to uh, the punters. No, no, he definitely is. Um, I guess he can't... I mean, I, if I was Dean Nolder, I would be, you know, pointing that out rather than pointing out any flaws because basically we we want to see these things sold, don't we? We don't. The government doesn't need to own them. Oh, the, that's certainly the record around the country. Yeah. Yes. Um, now, we'll go a bit international. Well, not a bit international, but Brexit. Now, you had a chat during the week. Is it a blip? Or, and what does it mean for WA? Yeah, look, I went to a very enjoyable and very interesting breakfast uh, event on Monday morning. Uh, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, Peter Estlin, was in Perth mm-hmm. as the start of a, a week-long Australian tour. Okay. I have to admit, I hadn't been familiar with the role of the City of London. Uh, that's an entity that basically looks after the square mile. Ah, uh, so this is the financial services city of London. That's right. Right, OK. Not, not the greater no, London No, I was going to say, because that name, that mayor doesn't sound familiar to no, me. No, no. So, um, so that's the way uh, local government is right. structured in London. So he's not one of the successors to Boris Johnson? No, he's not. Got it. Um, so, look, you know, we've all been hearing a lot about Brexit. Um, and just, you know, over this week, Boris Johnson has faced, you know, more issues um, with his attempts to uh, to push through uh, with Brexit. Um, Peter Esselin used this phrase. He said, Brexit is a blip. Um, now, that raised a few eyebrows around the room. But when I was chatting to him later, he emphasised that he wasn't being flippant. He said that it's been very distracting, very frustrating and consuming an awful lot of time and attention. You know, it's dominating political debate in the UK Mm. and creating a lot of nerves around the world. You know, many people that I think you and I speak to, they talk about issues like Brexit and the China-US trade war as, as global events causing uncertainty and discouraging investment. Yeah. Peter Esselin put it in some context and he said, look, when we look back at the 21st century and say what was really important, his view is that Brexit will not be up there. Now, he talked about some other really big long-term trends like the rise of digital technologies, you know, which profoundly change the way business operates and the way we all work. Um, he talked about the, the trend towards green energy and sustainability as having a big influence on the business community. 
Um, and he talked about another issue that we don't see so much in Australia now, but mass migration. Mm. You know, Europe's got big issues dealing with uh, refugees and, and mass movements of people across borders. He said, these are the things that are really shift changing you know, the way the UK operates. Um, his view around Brexit is that it's going to be um, you know, exactly how it pans out. He doesn't know, readily admits that. None of us know. So he's not worried that he's going to lose. I mean, I know this isn't really a WA story, but he's not worried he's going to lose, you know, a large amount of his, you know, or the occupants of his square mile to Frankfurt or whatever. Look, he talked about how some of the financial institutions have set themselves up already where they'll have, you know, they've got multiple offices across Europe and they may shift some of their work. But I think his message for certainly an Australian audience is that the UK has always been an outward-focused trading nation, and that won't change. In fact, if anything, they want to do more of that, and they want to be able to do trade deals with countries like Australia and countries in Latin America and Africa and so on. In fact, being part of Europe, in a way, has held them back from doing that. So, you know, how they get there, well, it's going to be this awfully difficult exercise, and the debate we've been going, you know, witnessing over you know, what, more than a year now? Oh, yeah, 18 uh, months, two 18, years. Two yeah, years, yeah, yes, yeah. I'll lose track of time. Yeah. No, no, okay, well, that's that's interesting. And I think the message there for, for West Australia, I think, is that there's the possibility of getting, yeah, a bit more direct business. And I guess if there was a free trade agreement, you know, and, and Britain's always been a big investor in WA, so maybe we'll see a bit more resurgence of that as they look to, you know, well, you know, they, they, they'll be a little bit blocked for doing things in, in Europe. Okay, interesting. Um, now, you and I both headed out to Quinana earlier this week for the launch of Tianchi Lithium's processing plant. What did you learn? Well, it was good to finally get down to Quinana and see the lithium refinery that Tianchi has built down there. We've written about it uh, many times. Um, it's good to actually get up close and see it. Um, very impressive looking um, process plant. Um, now, Tianchi was the first mover in this little lithium mini boom that we've been through in WA over the past couple of years. Um, The event that they held down there was to officially mark the start of operations. Um, Now, it was a bit of a mixed bag in the sense that they're still working to complete stage one of their project um, and general manager Phil Thick said that's their full focus at the moment. Yeah, right. To complete... Because it looked like there was still a fair construction team there. Yes. And everything was looking very shiny and new and clean. Hmm. Um, so not a lot of production happening. But look, the plan is to uh, complete that by October, so um, you know, next month, and then go into a, a, a ramp up and full commissioning stage, which will take another 12 to 18 months. Right. While they do that, they've actually put their stage two expansion yeah. on hold. So we're talking the first stage was 24,000 tonnes per annum, correct? Of lithium yep. hydroxide. Hydroxide, okay. And second stage is the same again, so well, doubling it. That's right. Right. So they've, they're capping themselves at the moment yep. at 24,000, which I presume is you take 18 months to get up to full, full yep. capacity on 24,000. Okay. And they're already halfway through stage two, but they've taken the view for a couple of reasons um, that they'll put that on hold. Uh, one is simply just so they can get focused on getting stage one up and running. But number two, the world has changed or that the market has changed. Um, lots of other people have come along and said, well, we're going to start producing lots of lithium as well. Yep. Um, the price has fallen sharply. Um, and so there's been that sort of 
you know, quite sharp softening in the market and other people in the market. You know, Albemarle is building a similar refinery down at Kemerton and they've scaled back the size of that. Um, Albemarle and Mineral Resources have been planning to build a refinery up in the Pilbara. Um, that's been put on hold. And then the other group, um, Kidman Resources, they've got plans for a refinery also at Quinana. Yep. Now, West Farmers is just going through the final steps of taking over Kidman. And we're all going to watch with very keen interest hmm. to see how West Farmers plays that. Yeah, right. You know, I think they paid, they paid top dollar, um, so the shareholders of Kidman will be very happy. Um, whether West Farmers and their joint venture partner press ahead remains to be seen. Mm. But look, nonetheless, um, as Phil Thick was saying to us, um, Tianchi was the first mover. They've uh, committed to this. Uh, they've got uh, offtake agreements with uh, global customers, um, and they see it's a long-term game. You know, this trend towards electric vehicles um, is, a, is a big global trend. Um, the speed of that trend, well, you know, like all these long-term things, we're not quite sure how it will pan out. Sure, exactly. But they certainly see a big opportunity and and further expansion um, over the coming coming years and decade. And I think that the other thing that's interesting there, and it, you had a high representation of uh, of uh, Chinese. Uh, we had the local consul general. You had obviously it's Chinese owned, uh, so you had the the, the owners there. You had um, you had lots of the customers who are Chinese. I thought strategically, what's interesting here is not just that. It's a local, you know, we're a large lithium producer and we're putting some value add right here, but also it's a Chinese operation. I think traditionally everything they can in that space has been imported to China for processing there, which gives China a very strategic advantage internationally. But Tianchi's put it outside of China, which gives them a kind of a different sell. You know, there's, there's not kind of, for their customers who are not in, who may not be in China, there may be a little bit of a little bit of a safety option there with with this trade war that's going on. Well, you know, we're we're not, you know, one hundred percent, you know, in that in that zone. <laughs> I think there's something in that. It's very strategic and really interesting, and I'm kind of pleased that WA is the spot they've chosen. Yeah. Well, and in fact, a, a key point I should have mentioned earlier. I mean, this is the first plant of its kind built outside of China. Yeah. You know, a, a fully automated, twenty four seven lithium hydroxide plant. So we've, it really did break new ground. So the next phase is to get some next level investment here where that lithium hydroxide then gets put into another, you know, whatever the next stage is, and forgive me for my lack of knowledge. Um, ultimately, we want to get as close to battery production as we can, don't we? Yeah, and look, you know, one of the guests there was Tim Shanahan, who chairs the, I think it's the Future Battery Industries uh, commercial Research Centre or right. Cooperative Research Centre. And, and Stedman and Ellis is his executive. Yep. So uh, that, that's the goal, that they're trying to bring together all the, the smart people in the state yep. to get that next level of processing happening here in WA. Good. Well, I'm, I look forward to hearing more. Uh, now, I saw some footage of one of our reporters hurling an axe, and I thought, there's someone I don't want to turn my back on. Mark, why was Matt McKenzie tossing a tool like a weapon? Okay. <laughs> We had a couple of really interesting articles in our latest edition that have um, attracted a lot of interest from our readers. Um, one of them I found quite extraordinary, um, an axe-throwing venue. Now, my son was in holiday on holidays in the US a year or two ago, and he went to a place in the US where you can go and buy a beer and then throw an axe at a big target. Mm. And I thought, 
wow, that's weird. I can't imagine that taking off in Perth. <laughs> it's like... So, lo and behold, not one, but three axe-throwing <laughs> venues opening up in Perth. So there's uh, Maniacs in Northbridge, uh, there's Lumberpunks in East Perth, and then Maxed Out Axe-throwing up in Wangara. So look, people want to go out and have a bit of fun. You know, we everyone, well, many people sit behind their screens and, and play video games and yeah. watch TV and... and what have you, and Netflix, um, but people want to be sociable. And, you know, going out to a, a pub or a small bar is one option. But uh, the people behind each of these venues saying, look, you know, there's a real craving out there for going out, doing something where you interact with others, it's fun, it's sociable, and um, good luck to them. Yeah. Whether, whether there's, um, you know, demand for three axe-throwing venues in Perth remains to be seen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I love it that people are prepared to invest their money setting up something new and different and having a go. Yeah, and look, you know, I look at it and go, I mean, first of all, I'm just imagining getting something through liquor licensing. Ten years ago, I just can't imagine that would have been possible, that you could have a venue selling alcohol and throwing axes. So there's been a big change in the way our regulations act or, 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 uh, or uh, you know, the way the industry's regulated to allow that to happen, uh, you know. And I know it's not just, you know, axe throwing's just one extreme. There's, there's other things like golf or putt, 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 that kind of stuff, which is, you know, less extreme and obviously more obviously you can do it. But there's been so many things restricted in the past um, that I just go, wow, you know, the, 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 there's something different, do you, do you think? Yeah, and look, um, I, mean, I, I will qualify. Not all of the axe-throwing places are licensed yet. Okay, but, but got that, it. that's the right. path they're heading down. Okay. Are um, any of them licensed? I believe they are, yes. Certainly some of them are licensed. Okay, good. Yep. Um, well, look, you know, another point, and this leads on to another discussion, um, we had another article about opening of new craft breweries in WA, We've got 75 breweries in this state. Isn't it amazing? Now, when you and I were young boys, it was the Swan Brewery. Yeah. And that was about it. That's that all. Oh, that was it. Yep. Um, and then Matilda Bay opened up in Fremantle. Yeah, and you could mm. just get some Fosters or something in the bottle shop. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you know, we've already got 75 breweries, and yet there's more on the way. Two new ones have recently opened. Um We've got Wild Hop Brewing in Yelling Up. Uh, we've got Freestyle Brewing in Bassendine. And we've got about three more going through the planning and uh, construction phase. Yeah, right. Um, in the Swan Valley, in Bustleton, in Fremantle. Um, so it's all about, for all of them, it's about, one, it's partly about people having a passion for brewing beer. Yep. And, and extending that into a business. Um, and two, it's about, you know, these are niche businesses, they're, they're hoping they're going to get bigger, but yeah. you know, each of them are seeing a little niche in the market for themselves, um, and they're able to you know, operate at a small scale um, and hopefully pay their bills and make a bit of money. And I think part of it is it, it's the, the capital to get a brewery up and running is, is, is much lower than it would have been. That, that, that sort of uh, mini brewery stuff is pretty easy, and I guess you set yourself up as a hospitality venue, and uh, you know that that's kind of that gives you another income stream, right? So you, you you're going direct to the public, and then you know because the tough gig is to get your stuff out there in the shops or the liquor stores or the uh, or the uh, other venues you don't own. Um, all right, well that's uh, that's a pretty fascinating story. 
Um, now, um, well, we're kind of in that hospitality business still. Uh, financial services player Graham Yukich uh, has expanded his, well, I, I, I was kind of saying hospitality and produce business because I think he's got a bit of everything, hasn't he? Or is he just wine? Yeah. Um, and, and he's got a new purchase in the Swan Valley. Yeah, I remember I first met Graham Yukich many years ago when he was at the old Hartley Poynton, yeah. uh, which is now, of course, Hartley's. Um, he left there and set up um, Entrust Private Wealth Management, uh, which subsequently yeah. became part of Euros. Yeah. Um, and Graham's now focused on the family business, uh, which is based up in the Swan Valley. Um, he's, he's part of a third-generation farming family. Yeah. Um, and they're expanding uh, their business. So, so his is Oakover, right? Oakover Wines, yeah. yes. Um, so they've got a property up in the Swan Valley where they, they grow their own uh, grapes, make their own wine. Um, they've got sort of cafe and function space up there. Um, he's bought uh, Fiori Coffee, um, right. coffee roasters that were established um, back in about 2006. Yep. Um, also bought European Foods. A couple of years ago, yeah, of course, from right. the Ree family, a yep. um, couple of you know, well-known retail outlets in the city and a big wholesale business, um, bought Blue Cow Cheese out of administration earlier this year. And then the latest deal, uh, they've bought the, 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 the property um, where Horton Wines traditionally has been made. Um, so that asset was part of Accolade Wines, which is one of these sort of global sort of wine-making um, sort of giant businesses. Uh, they've been sort of rationalising their assets. Um, Accolade has retained the Horton brand, um, and they'll still produce okay. that brand out of their other assets, including down at Nanup. Um, but the property itself um, is now part of um, the Jukic family's Oakover business. And so, you know, the, for recollection, the Horton winery, the actual property, is kind of like the the earliest, the biggest original wine uh, vineyard and set up in the state, isn't it? I think it was back in the 1850s yep. um, when people first started uh, planting grapevines yeah, up yeah. there in the Swan Valley. Got it. Um, so, yeah, a lot of history. Um, and then, in fact, uh, the Yukich family, they bought the, the property on which their Oakover business sits. They actually bought that. 30 years ago, yeah, got and it. then now they've expanded that and bought bought more assets around it. So they've now got the winemaking facility, the cellar door, and the established vineyard and so on. Yeah. Um, so Horton was a major winemaker here, and then, for recollection, it was bought by BRL Hardy out of South Australia. They acquired it. They owned it for a long time, and, and I'm pretty sure under them, but I, could, I might have get my timing wrong, you and I will remember the Horton's White Burgundy as the... Uh, it was one of those big brands that, you know, it became a big seller nationally. Um, and I forget, you know, BRL Hardy then became part of something else and something else. And I think, you, you know, you've got to accolade at some point. I think there was Constellation in, in between. Um, when there was that large, it was sort of that nationalisation of wine, like big companies growing nationally. And then there was the globalisation of it. They just became part of these large beverage groups. And then there's been this kind of... After that consolidation, you get this kind of fragmenting again, don't you? And I think when in that sort of global context, WA is a very small producer, yeah, a, a premium producer, 
um, with some very well-known brands, yeah. but the volumes that come out of WA are tiny yeah, yeah. on a global scale. Well, I think, but, you know, Australia is a decent producer in the world, you know, and I think my recollection is we produce 4% of the nation's wine, right? That's by volume? My, by volume. Yep. And 25% of it by value, I think. Or, no, those sorts of numbers, yeah. yeah. Or 25% of the premium wine comes out of WA, but 4% of total wine. But it was so it's funny when you do get a, a label like Horton's White Burgundy, which I don't think you can say White Burgundy anymore, can you? <laughs> <laughs> that that kind of got ruled out years ago. Um, but a, but the fact that we did actually have a few of those things become national is, is quite rare. Yeah. But look... Um, you know, Graeme Yukich was saying that with this transaction, you know, they bought the uh, the land 30 years ago and he said now they're putting the entire plot back together. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, quite so, a moment. So he, he hasn't probably indicated yet. So is he going to make wine from that property into Oakover or is, is he going to supply to um, Horton at all or is that all just... A... I, I, my impression is that they'll be doing their own thing. Right. So he, he will then become quite quickly one of the larger... Produce, wine producers in the state, a bit oh, like we've seen the yeah. Peter Fogarty and Millbrook and Deep Woods, and it's what's it Fogarty Wine Group? Is that right? That's right. Yes. So that, that, which, which sits on top of our list of, of yeah, WA so winemakers. I mean, over ten years, he's come from not much to the number one by doing much the same thing, buying up bits and pieces of things that others have got rid of. Or yeah, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Mm. An interesting change, and the privatisation of that industry back into private local hands is also a fascinating story, I think. And one that we've explored many times in the pages of business news. Um, All right, well, best of luck to Graham and uh, no doubt we'll be following that closely. Um, Now, Mark, our special report this week is on the gold sector. Um, What did Adrian Rousseau find? So each year we go through the production data for Western Australian mines. Um, and so we sort of carve up the industry in a different way to what most other people do. And one thing that strikes me is that we're in this point where the gold price is at very high levels. Mm-hmm. And in, in Australian dollar terms, it's at record levels. Yep. Um, so overall, the industry is in a pretty healthy state. Um, and yet production has not grown substantially. Um, last year was about 6.5 million ounces, uh, which is around two-thirds of Australia's total production. Um, but that total volume hasn't changed much for quite some time. And it just highlights, I think, this issue that um, as we keep on digging out the gold and producing it, we need to keep on finding and developing new gold mines just to sustain the volume of output. Yeah. Um, particularly interesting at a time when... Um, some of the biggest mines, so Boddington is the biggest in the state, um, production tapered off there last year. They had some issues down that way. Um, and the super pit up in Kalgoorlie, which for many years was the largest in the country, yep. um, they had some very serious production issues. Uh, there was a, a slippage in the mine wall, okay. um, and they've had to do a lot of work up there, so there was a big fall away in production from the super pit. Um, but look, you know, it highlights that the Prominence of a few big global players, so Newmont, um, well now known as Newmont Gold Corp, after a big merger they did, uh, Goldfields, Anglo Gold Ashanti, you know those global players are the ones that sit at the top of our list. Got it. Um, but then locals, you know, Northern Star Resources, Regis, uh, Saracen Mineral Holdings, West Gold, you know, they're the they're the the big mid tier players, um, 
and of them, you know, Northern Star is certainly the the fast growing one, um, especially since they expanded into uh, they bought the Pogo gold mine up in Alaska. Yep. So you know they're really growing. Um, we do a bit of analysis around the future of the super pit because Barrick Gold is looking to sell its fifty percent stake, and does not appear to be getting a great deal of interest. Hmm. So it's this you know, interesting scenario where you know, record Aussie dollar gold price, but it's a it's a very big asset, but it's also a very mature asset. Yeah, got it. And they've they've got their production issues. Yeah, and it's right in the town, right? So you know, some of the, they've got expansion issues, even if they want to, right? Oh, very much so. Yeah. So look, you know, good analysis there, um, and also a, a detailed look at um, Gold Road Resources. Uh, they own half the Gruyere Gold Mine, okay. which has just gone into production. So that was um, one of those rare. Um, Green, a large greenfields discovery. Um, there was a lot of discussion about whether Gold Road should just press ahead and develop it on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, they took the prudent approach and sold half of it to Gold Road, and together, you know, they, they faced the issues that seem to be experienced by all big new projects. You know, it cost more, took longer, but with the, the joint venture structure, they're up and in production, and with a bright outlook. Yeah, well, so, I think the, the the problem is out there in the gold world is that that single asset company just can't get funding. You can't get any. You can't get the bank to back you. That's right. So uh, you know you've got to find another way, which people are out there trying to do some new ways as well, right? All right, Mark. Well, look, uh, fascinating. I look forward to reading that in depth. Uh, We have a busy period for events coming up. On Wednesday the 25th of September, we have our inaugural Food for Thought Breakfast, where we will showcase the talents of five incredible WA women leaders. On the 27th, our Success and Leadership Breakfast features Eddie Hagel, the leader who turned around BHP's Nickel West operation. And then just a few days later, on October 2, we have Nationals WA leader Mia Davies as our latest policy and politics breakfast guest. Yes, they're all breakfast events, so get your day started with some networking and hear some inspiring stories. Call Rosie at Business News or go online to make a booking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.